You're listening to Plenary Session. On today's Plenary Session, I'm going to take a little detour. I've been hearing a lot and been asked often about advice or recommendations for how to use Twitter. And I recently took some time and just sat down and wrote down some thoughts and figured, you know what, I might as well subject the listening audience of Plenary Session to these thoughts. And I thought I could tweet it out, but of course, that's not going to be as interesting as if you get to hear it straight from me. So on today's episode, you're in for a real treat. It's a bonus episode called Advice for Twitter by VP. So you don't want to miss this. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, I need you to do three things. One, go to patreon.com and back this podcast. Backing an artist you support on patreon.com is a great way to keep something going. Next, go to the iTunes store and don't just give us five stars. Write a review. Tell us what you like about the podcast and what you don't like. A written review goes a long way. Third, recommend Plenary Session to a friend. If you have a friend, a colleague, someone you think is going to like this podcast, give them a recommendation. We can use it on Plenary Session. Now, what can Plenary Session do for you? Well, we can answer your questions. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or send us an email at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like listener comments and questions and we're happy to talk about them on the next episode. Okay. So first, I'm going to say what this is not. This is not a very simple how-to guide uh, that would bore me to try to put that together for you. Uh, You can find that elsewhere. And if you can't figure out how to use a very simple website meant to addict you to using it, uh, then you're probably beyond my help, so I can't really help you there. All right, so here is just my personal thoughts on Twitter. Of course, um, lest someone accuse me of not practicing evidence-based advice, let me say for the outset, this is not advice. This is just merely how I think about this platform. And let me also say that when someone who is a physician champions evidence-based medicine and asks others to provide high-quality evidence before they, as a matter of routine, implement some medical practice, pointing out that that person does not hold that standard for every other walk of life doesn't make them a hypocrite. That makes them a human being. So for instance, there are many things we do in life for which we do not ask for or require evidence. For instance, I went to a few movies in the last few months. What movies did I go to? Did I do a randomized trial to figure out what movies to go to? (laughs) No, I didn't because you don't do such a thing. Randomized trials are done to tease out modest to marginal effect size interventions from hope and hype, and they're particularly useful in a space where one cannot rely on pathophysiology alone, and particularly useful in a social context where we are asking society or taxpayers or large federal payers to subsidize something for other people in the hopes that this is something that's different from other goods. This is a truly transcendent human good, which is healthcare. And if you're going to do such a thing, you really are subjected to a higher burden than, say, what I choose to do with my personal money in terms of going to the movies. But anyway, I'm not going to talk about this forever. I'll make myself heated and I'll be bored because it's obvious to me and it's obvious to anyone who has ever thought about this for two seconds. But yet, nevertheless, someone may say, your rules for Twitter are not evidence-based. And of course, I will concede they are not. These are not even meant to be rules. These are just some personal thoughts on the matter. Okay, that said, I figured I'd kick this off by just telling you very briefly how I got sucked down the rabbit hole of Twitter. And I believe, and memory may be deceiving me, but I believe it went something like this. Um, In the winter of uh, 2013, 
uh, early 2014. I believe I was taking a class at Johns Hopkins University where somebody mandated that we make a Twitter account to participate in said class. I remember thinking that was a foolish idea. And uh, since then, I still stand by the fact that you should not really force people to uh, sign up for an addictive social media service. Um, but once I signed up, of course, like most users who sign up, I was silent. I barely used the platform for months. Um, and then, in my own recollection, although there is some record that somebody could try to piece together, I believe that I started to talk a little bit more um, in the wake of some insults to a paper we did. So in 2013, we published a paper um, on 146 medical reversals that appeared in the Mayo Clinic proceedings. I have the recollection of one day reading on Twitter when I was clicking through the app, which I was admittedly doing rarely, uh, that somebody said something like, this is not useful or not helpful or cast medicine in a bad light. Uh, I found the commentary about our article to be off base. I also thought it was, um, you know, a bit insulting, and I thought that was a really good paper, and I, and I still think that's a really good paper. It's a paper you should read, and it should be cited, and it took a lot of effort, uh, not just my effort, but lots of other people. So I felt compelled in that moment to reply and defend the article, which I believe I did. Um, so I think that's kind of how I got into it and got pulled out sort of from the infrequent use um, reader mode into sort of talking about things. And then I think when I came out on faculty in 2015, I think I started using it more and more um, in the months since then. And very quickly, uh, I think uh, some people had noticed how I was using it, and you know, there were some news articles on the topic. Um, and uh, I think how I use it has led to, uh, you know, for better or worse, uh, connecting with people who are interested in in following me. Maybe they don't agree with everything I say, but at least there's seems like there's some of them who are interested. Okay. That's just my personal story. And now, of course, I believe that, unfortunately, uh, I am uh, been addicted to the program and, uh, you know, probably do uh, exhibit some of the signs of dependency, which is uh, frequent use and, and sort of craving uh, to look to see what, what's going on. Um, but at the same time, I've been more cognizant of that in more recent months and actually uh, has set some very firm boundaries and don't try to look at it in certain times and, and also try not to respond to the vast sea of junk that uh, I'm greeted with uh, quite often. Okay, so that said, that's my that's the personal story. So now let me let me just give some of, you know, how I think about the platform. Uh, not advice, not certainly not evidence-based advice, but perhaps um, some thoughts for you all. So I would say my first contention would be that anyone, perhaps everyone in academics, um, should be on Twitter. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not going to say you should be on there acting like me or acting like anyone else. I, I would say a very limited way you should be on there. Um, you should use it as a profile page. So you should, you know, create an account, make it under your name and, and, and tell people a little bit about you and have a profile page um, and use it as a reader. I mean, at the end of the day, one of the things that Twitter is, is it's a way to take in information. The same way, you know, I used to like to peruse the New York Times and Slate and Vox and a, a few other websites I like to read every morning. Now Twitter is just one more of those things. It's a reader. It's a reading app that I like to use uh, to read things that um, I might not read elsewhere. And and part of what that means is, you know, you go out and you follow a few people whose work you know or whom you know. Um, but I think part of it means that just like the New York Times website or just like Slate, you surf around, you find interesting content, and you follow more people. 
and I recommend that the best way to use it is this organic way. The exact same way, a decade ago, I would use Slate to look around, find writers whose work I'm interested in and try to read more by them, or the website of the New York Review of Books, or the New York Times, or the New Yorker, or you know, a traditional media site. Now, I use Twitter to find interesting content and decide who to follow. And the nice thing about it is it's short and sweet, so you can read it when you're bored. You can read it when you're waiting for the elevator. You can um, direct message a, a tweet to yourself and read the link later. Um, and of course, you know, if you got time, you can read blog posts and links and listen to podcasts, whatever you want. And you know, in terms of the profile page aspect of it, I think you can tweet out at a minimum just tweet out the papers you publish. Uh, just so it's sort of it's out there the way you know one would use a LinkedIn page. This is just who you are, and this is the work you're doing. You don't even have to put much commentary there, but just kind of use it as a continually running um, bibliography or continually running CV. Okay, <clears throat> one of the things I personally believe, particularly for the physicians out there, um, you better put your conflict of interest in your biography. Put it right there in your bio. You don't want to be out there in social media mired in conflict of interest, knee-deep in personal payments, and have that be two steps removed from the audience. That's just not going to look good. That's going to look like you're hiding something, and you probably don't want to look that way. And then I would also humbly offer that if you are being paid by the makers of a costly novel um, cancer drug, you probably don't want to be uh, tweeting that that drug is a miracle when the only thing miraculous about it is that they found MTD in a phase one or um, that uh, that the drug was tested in some uncontrolled clinical setting and has some um, response rate that really cannot be compared to any known benchmark because it uses a molecular subset or something like that. You know, So you don't want to be over exuberant uh, about your conflict of interest. You want to at least have the wherewithal, the basic common sense of optics and you're going to look like, a, frankly, often like a shill if you're going to be tweeting about things while you're being paid by the maker. Okay, those are just my two cents. Take it or leave it, okay? And tweet your own work. Um, I just mentioned, you know, I once tweeted something like, you know, uh, if you tweet an article you wrote, that's not narcissism. That's in part why anyone would want to follow you because they want to know what you're doing. That's why you're following that person, not some other person. So it's kind of kind of part of what people would want. Uh, the second thing is, if you really want to know what narcissism is, I think narcissism is writing your own Wikipedia page or say, God forbid, if you got your former research assistant to write your own Wikipedia page. That would be an overt act of narcissism, though I don't know anyone who would do such a thing. Okay, so that's my, that's like the basic package. You're on Twitter, you use it very seldomly. You, you use it as a place, a repository for your work. Maybe you're using it as a reader. That's all I can say that you really ought to do. The next thing I'd say is, beyond that, use it however you wish. There is no rule book. People who are out there putting rule books or teaching one-hour lectures on this topic, you know, I, don't, I, I frankly don't know what they're doing with all that time. There's no rule book. There's different ways to use any new, new tool. There is no canonical way to use this. But I will go on and say, this is what I'm personally looking for, you know, in, in what's to come. This is what I personally look for when I decide you know, how I'm going to spend my time on there and who I'm going to follow and, and who I'm going to unfollow and who I'm going to, you know, look through their old tweets. Number one, you got to say things that interest me. That is the bottom line. You got to say things that interest me and you got to talk about what you know backwards and forwards. You got to talk about what your knowledge base is. What do you know really well? That's what I want to hear you talking about. I want you to make strong and defensible claims about what you know well. 
okay? I want you to be able and ready and willing to handle pushback. If somebody pushes back on something you said about what you know well, you got to push back on them. I want you to say, you know, stand up for what you just said. Don't just blow over with a mild gust of wind. So, you know, just as a corollary to that, if you're not good at something, for instance, if you're not good at critically reading journal articles, then I don't want to see you tweeting them out with a superlative salad on top. In fact, if you're not good at reading something and you're tweeting it out in a certain context and somebody comes along who is good at it and they push hard on you, you're not going to be able to push back. You're going to get pushed over and you're going to get yourself unfollowed or not followed in the first place because you're going to look quite foolish, untrustworthy. You're going to look like, I don't know, embarrassing. It's an embarrassment, I think, to be if you're continually pushed over like that because you know you don't have that knowledge base. And that's okay. You don't have to have that knowledge base in, I don't know, say, reading journal articles. In fact, in the grand scheme of life, I, I don't think anyone has ever, you know, as a child, prayed that they grow up to be good at reading journal articles. That's not a skill. I'd rather have been good at basketball, okay? I'm happy to concede that, okay? But, you know, um, if, that's, if that's what you're wanting to go out there and do, you better be good at it. Another corollary. If you don't have good clinical experience, don't talk about how would you treat scenario X or Y or Z. How you treat a specific scenario is a combination of your knowledge and understanding of the literature as well as, I think, some of your experience and understanding some of the technicalities. Now, that said, there are a lot of people out there who are good at reading journal articles who are clinically knowledgeable and they should feel comfortable to tweet about those things. Um, you know, I'm talking a lot about medicine that just happens to be the field I'm in and just happens to be the reason I'm on Twitter. And that's in part because if I wanted to read about baking or I wanted to read about politics, and I do want to read about those two things, don't get me wrong, I do, but I'm not going to go to Twitter and follow a bunch of doctors to read about the latest happenings with Robert Mueller. I'm going to follow Preet Bharara and Anna Milgram. I'm going to listen to their podcast. If I want to know about the Supreme Court, I'm going to listen to Ken and Shamagam. I'm not going to listen to people who don't know anything about the topic if I want to get an insider's view of the topic. Okay. I will go on. Most of your feed, the majority of your feed has to be this. It has to be things you know well, things you have opinions on, and things you can defend. If the balance tips and you find me, an oncologist with training in evidence-based medicine and meta-research and epidemiology, talking mostly politics, mostly Supreme Court, mostly fine wines, you better unfollow me because why on earth would I follow a doctor for that information? Why would I follow a doctor for how to bake cookies when I can follow someone who knows how to bake cookies and bakes cookies for a living? Okay, uh, that you gotta you gotta go with your strength, and that's what your feed has got to be. Okay, next point. You should care little to not at all about whether or not the audience responds to you or is responding to you. In fact, they can go to hell. The entire point of Twitter is that if you are talking about what you care about and you are doing it at a very high level, the right audience will find you. This is the entire purpose of the platform. You are creating a newsletter on an esoteric and odd topic that just so happens to be the thing that you are qualified to talk about and the people who happen to be interested in that esoteric and odd topic are going to find you. That's, the, that's the, I think, the, the cleverness to the project. That's how it's different than Vox and Slate and New York Times or whatever canonical, traditional news outlet is that at long last, there is a platform that allows people to create a channel that may be weird and funky and 
and you wouldn't think there'd be, you know, 30,000 people interested in that, but there just so happens to be. And until, you know, this point in time, no one ever thought to bring that out there and offer that as a as a channel on cable TV. You know, so there's once 200 channels, now there's like, you know, maybe 200,000 different quirky combination voices out there. So the point is, you're not supposed to be caring what the audience thinks. The right audience is going to find you and the wrong audience is going to go away. That's good. It's good for you. It's good for the people you interact with. In fact, that's why it's a reader that's different than other readers. It allows a customization that doesn't exist in other topics. And I and I use a lot of readers, even automated searches of certain engines to provide me with things I think I will find interesting, but nothing compares to following individuals on Twitter. Okay. Um, the next point I'd say, uh, aside from one person and you know who you are and you're going to get a pass in my books because we know each other. Um, if you want to go on Twitter and put a doctor behind your name but be anonymous, I would humbly say you're a bit of a coward and you want to have your cake and eat it too because you want to go on there and pretend that you get all the gravitas and respect that comes with the profession that you have but then you want to act like a buffoon um, curse willy-nilly make provocative statements and have no fundamental accountability so anonymous doctors on twitter i really don't like i don't like reading your content and you know you're not going to get followed by me and uh if i ever saw you face to face i would tell you to your face that you're a coward um, because it's much harder to put your face and your name out there and stand for something, to say what you mean and to stand by it. Uh, So those are just my two cents. My next point. Uh, Don't ever reveal details about a patient you saw that makes it identifiable. Uh, And yet I continually see this. And if you want to know more on this topic, I encourage you to read Case Reports in the Age of Twitter by Adam Shifu Andre Vandross, and myself in the American Journal of Medicine. It is available for you to read at www.vinaycapersed.com forward slash papers. Read this this paper, and um, this is our argument for why you got to be a little bit um, cautious about the way in which you're talking about individual cases. And in fact, the safest thing to do is just not to talk about it at all. And in fact, instead of talking about anecdotes, it might be prudent to talk about data, and data is not the plural of anecdote. Uh, And also, if you go on Twitter and you start telling anecdotes and you're drawing the wrong lessons from your anecdotes, um, which, in fact, I see from time to time, you are going to get crushed. You may be publicly crushed or you may be privately crushed, but you're going to get crushed. There are going to be people who are very quick to understand that you're not drawing the right lesson. And they are either going to criticize you to your face or or laugh at you when they call me on the phone later. Um, You know, so I I, I suggest you better be really careful. And of course, don't make it identifiable. I mean, one, I think that would violate HIPAA, but you don't even need to violate HIPAA. That is just gross. Um, People are coming to you and confiding in you, and that's part of why they see you. And so, you know, I think to see, if I saw a doctor and I saw them posting about the things I told them in in confidence, I would be uh, quite furious with them. And I'm I'm surprised that there are not more people out there whose patients are furious with them because I see this behavior all the time. I mean, I personally think that to talking about anecdotes is a very low form of reasoning because we have to talk about data. Um, and so I don't choose to do that at all. Um, but I certainly wouldn't do it in a way that makes it identifiable. That, that's borderline engaging in self-destructive behavior. Okay. Next point. Don't just talk to the same seven people in all your threads. Okay. There are some of you out there who create your little groups and you just talk to the same seven or nine or ten people about the same issues. Your little exclusionary club 
don't do that. I mean, one, that's against the egalitarian spirit of the platform. Uh, one of the spirits of the platform is that anyone can talk to anyone. Um, two, two uh, there are a lot of other people who will observe this behavior and see like they're like um, uh, a high school uh, group of friends that is exclusionary towards other people. Um, and three, you know, do you really want to be mired in groupthink the rest of your life? Or do you ever want to hear something that you might not have thought about or that will challenge you or push you? Um, so, you know, when people reply to you, of course, I will be the first to say there's no way on earth you'll be able to reply to everyone back, okay? Uh, it'll quickly get to the point where you can't reply to all the replies. That's fine. But when you do reply, it should be based more or less on randomness, like when you were randomly free, uh, rather than just trying to reply to certain people. That, that doesn't look good. Um, okay, next point. The same is true for tweeting out lists of people to follow. This list of people to follow, this is quite, it's quite sad. I mean, it's quite sad in a number of ways. One, um, boy, I really would hope that nobody would follow me because they saw my name on a list. Uh, that's, you know, if that's why you're following me because you saw my name on a list, take away the, unfollow me, please. Thank you. Um, because like I said in the beginning, the entire point is you want to find the audience that wants to interact with the things you're talking about. Maybe not always positively, but usually positively, but maybe not always positively, but at least they're interested in that topic matter. And when you're following people from lists, they may not be interested in that topic matter at all. Um, and who wants that? You know, uh, just who wants that? The next reason I dislike it is it just shows like a complete absence of understanding of the platform, which is that, you know, part of what the developers are doing is trying to addict you to surfing around on it. And in the course of your surfing, you will find, I think, what genuinely interests you. Um, that's the, the, the bent upside of that surfing. Um, but if you are not going to surf and you want people to hand you lists of people to follow, um, you know, you're also a lazy user. And you also have to ask yourself if you even want to be on the platform. Like I said, you can always go to the, the baseline mode, which is you just use it as a, this is who I am, and I'm going to use it occasionally as a reader. Uh, and maybe you don't want to use it as a reader. You know what? And maybe you don't want to use it, and that's okay. You don't have to use it. You don't have to use any, any tool out there you don't want to use. My next rule, don't ever say Takatsubo. If you ever get out there and you say Takatsubo, I'm coming for you. Now, uh, some people on Twitter will know what I'm getting at. Okay, a few more thoughts. Never beg and ask people to follow you, okay? Don't be desperate for followers. Don't direct message me asking how I can get followers. One, looks it's, ridic it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Um, two, um, it's embarrassing. Three, I think like anything else in life, the person who's on Twitter, whose goal in life is to amass followers, is the person who's going to find themselves not getting followed because they're tweeting out the most bland, gutless, toothless, boring comments. And no one's going to want to read this person. And they're going to be wondering why no one's following them. And they're going to be crying about it at night. I mean, if you care about if whether or not people are following you, you're also missing the point. The entire virtue of the platform is that the right people are going to follow you. People who care about what you care about. You and all your idiosyncrasies and quirks who thought, uh, who would have thought that, you know, somebody who 
cares about cancer drugs and policy and evidence-based medicine and nitty-gritty statistical analysis and, and concordant studies is going to find anyone to get, you know, who's interested in those topics. And that's, that's what the platform is doing. It's allowing people interested in these weird, quirky topic collections to get together. And so if you're out there and you want to grow your followers, like I hear people say, you're missing the point. Who cares if you get another 1,000 people following you if they have no interest or knowledge or, 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 or ability to talk to you about the thing that you want to talk about, which is supposedly that thing that you know well and should be the bulk of what you're talking about and the thing you're willing to defend. You know, it goes back to my first principle. Do not tweet, I'm at 990 followers. I'm at 1,997 followers who will be my 2,000 follow. Uh, you, can, you can do that, but it is embarrassing. It's embarrassing to watch you do that. Um, if I see any more of that, you're going to get yourself unfollowed by one, so you're going to have to make up for that. Uh, but that is very sad behavior. I just can't imagine. I mean, what's the equivalent? If you if you have a birthday party and you're like, only 19 people are coming to my birthday party. Can we make it 20, guys? If I got an invitation like that, I promise you I'm going to tear that invitation in half. This is something that I tweeted out recently, which is I, I find it hard to believe that the person coming to Twitter to announce the award no one cares about is in any way humbled by it. Um, now, what is this line? I think, I mean, I, I'm probably not going to do a good job of articulating the line. But there is certainly a line between somebody tweeting about what they know well and what they care about and their work in that space and that somebody fishing for compliments, the fishing for compliments line. And, you know, I think the audience is able to discern when something has crossed the line. I have a difficult time of articulating if I can sort of create principles of where that line is. Uh, but that line I do think exists. And people do want to hear you talk about your work. That, in fact, is probably one of the predominant things I want to see. I mean, if I'm following some academics and they're not tweeting about their papers, then I'm unhappy about that because part of why I'm following them is I want to get the scoop on their paper. When did this paper come out? What were your thoughts about it? What's your tweetorial about it? I, I didn't even talk about tweetorials all this time. Um, tweetorial is uh, some, a word that I heard from Daryl Francis, and I don't know where he heard it. Um, but that's you know what I call sort of a step-by-step walkthrough, a topic. I've heard other people call it, I mean, I guess the simple term to call it is thread. I've heard other people call it twirls, like a tweet pearl or twirl. That's, that loses, that easily loses. Or a tweet storm that also easily loses and not catchy at all. So I don't know why you do that. Uh, tweetorial is, of course, the most catchy version of that. Um, but you can call it whatever you want. But, of course, a thread in which you actually take some time and explain to a layperson or someone who doesn't have a whole heck of a lot of time what you did, why you did it, why it's important, what the shortcomings are, you know, that goes a long way. Um, that's you putting in some effort um, to make a, a nice meal that you're sharing with a lot of people. And I think those of us who follow that are, are very grateful. Um, just a word on argument or debate. I was recently joking. One of the things I hear is that your tone is very tough in a debate. I don't like your tone. And um, I do feel as if many, many times someone says, I don't like your tone when they're getting trounced on the merits of the arguments and they face a psychological decision. Do I fire back, I don't like your tone, or do I concede that I was wrong? And it is much more psychologically comforting to not like someone's tone than to concede that, you know what, well, maybe I was off a little bit. 
Okay, so I, I mean, I think that's that's the case. When you debate, like all good debates, it's very, it's 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 very. Uh, I guess I'll start by saying I think debate is very fun. I think it's perhaps the greatest academic exercise. When I teach a class, we end the class with a couple of debates, and we do it um, Oxford debate style, Intelligence Squared style. I moderate the debate, but I think debate is good. Debate forces you to refine and, and polish your ideas. You can't get on a debate stage unless you know your topic backwards and forwards, unless you have opinions and you're willing to stand by them. And debate, I think, is perhaps one of the best mental exercises, not evidence-based, of course, uh, but it's, I think it's a good exercise to get into. Into. And when I like to debate, I think it's a very simple thing. You, if you typically when I'm debating these days, it's because I made the claim and somebody pushed back on me. But I'm happy to be the one to do the initial pushback. But it's one thing when you made the claim and somebody pushes back. And what I find is, I think clearly about the claim I want to offer, and I put appropriate caveats, or I make it in a certain way such that I believe it is defensible. And somebody somebody pushes back, they usually push back against a straw man version, and the first thing you have to do is just to point out that you are not pushing back at the claim that I made, but a straw man version of the claim. So I guess what I would say is the good hallmark of debate is, one, you read something you think is wrong. Okay, that's easy. Step two restate what the person said better than they ever said it. If you can put it shorter and more sweetly than what they said, you already have a leg up. If you can toss out an analogy that puts the nail on the head of articulating what they're getting at, boom, that's that's a step one. Then step two, just to show what's logically wrong with that, what's incorrect, where does, where does it fall apart, what are the consequences of that view, how does that lead to absurdity? I mean, it's very simple to take apart an argument that is wrong. Um, and that's it. That's all it takes. Um, if you change the topic, if you backpedal, if you revise your own thesis over the course of the argument, oh boy, the audience is not going to like that. People reading are going to notice. I notice that all the time when I see somebody backpedaling, revising their argument. Those are people who I'm not going to follow because I can tell that their original proposition, their original assertion is something that you know perhaps they're not that knowledgeable about. And more importantly, perhaps they're not willing to defend. They're not able to defend because they haven't really thought about that topic a great deal. So, so those are my thoughts on Twitter. And I guess, you know, if I'm perfectly honest, I don't know how often I adhere to my own principles. I'm sure I do occasionally tweet something about, you know, some New York Times article where it says Elizabeth Warren is actually bringing policy proposals to the table. And whether or not you like those proposals, you got to admire somebody who actually wants to talk about how to solve some problems. And I, I think I did tweet that out because... That's true. Yeah, you got to admire somebody who actually wants to try to talk about some technical issues and not giving me insipid sound bites all the time. So I do. But of course, that's not my knowledge. No, I was wrong. You know, it doesn't, it's not my knowledge. It's not what I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm not a pundit. I don't know anything about that. Um, you know, but as somebody who cares about policy, I like the idea that somebody actually wants to, to get into it a little bit. Okay. Uh, so I, maybe I strayed a little bit outside of my comfort zone. And maybe I've talked about riding my bicycle a little bit too much or something like that. Okay. Okay. But for the most part, I do think the majority of my tweets are about the thing I care about and the thing that I make as topic of study, which is how do we provide excellent health care? How do we decide what drugs and devices and procedures to adopt? How do we sort out the ones we have from the lens of doing more of what actually makes people better off and less of what doesn't, but merely improves many of the plausible surrogate endpoints merely things that have bioplausibility. I think that's sort of what I'm very much interested in. And how does the landscape of hype and conflict and, and causality, uh, how do all these sort of things intertwine in towards us doing more of what works and what's enduring and less of what doesn't? Um, so that's really what I do talk mostly about. 
and how do we disseminate knowledge and and engage in open science and how do we have reproducibility and data sharing uh, and these issues which are very much inextricable um, from the conclusions of specific randomized controlled trials and studies which is the process by which that study apparatus is constructed um, and I don't want to say any more because we have some papers under review that I'm about to scoop, but I do think there's a set of some principles here that interlock um, and that really do really do hold together. And I think for the most part, I do live up to that. That's what I talk about. And, you know, when I make an assertion, it's very rarely a, an assertion made lightly. It is mostly an assertion made after long period uh, maybe even a decade or more of having thought about that topic and having reached that conclusion and mostly kept it to myself for many years uh, and probably told a few people um, at a dinner party or over the phone or in confidence that belief. Um, and thus, when somebody pushes back, I am prepared uh, to debate that assertion because I've thought about the replies and rebuttals and and I've eliminated them in my mind, which is part of the reason I came to said assertion in the first place, because I mulled that over during the long periods of time I've had over the last 20 years of solace to think about things, uh, particularly when I was in situations where I had abundant free time, like say, for instance, retracting for six to eight hours in an operation or something like that. We have a lot of time uh, to let your mind go. You know, and also, of course, because I grew up in an age before smartphones, so of course I had plenty of time. Um, so, you know, I do think that's part of, of 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 that. And I think that, you know, I often hear people who say something like they want more followers, and I think that that is God. That is just so sad, and it's just beside the point. Uh, I would kill to have half as many followers I, as I have now, but have that half actually be, uh, you know, twice as interested in, in what I want to talk about. And the same is true for listeners on a podcast. Um, there's so much interest in having your podcast reach, you know, more and more listeners every month. Um, and I don't know this for sure, but I would suspect that there are a lot of podcasts out there that get a lot of people who start listening to the episode, but there are very few that get a group of people who are going to devour it, who are going to listen to every single episode through and through. And I would much rather be in the latter group than the former group. I could care less about how many people start a plenary session. I'm interested in who's going to listen to all of the plenary sessions. All of them. That's what I'm interested in. And uh, again, because it's that you want the people who want to engage in the particular combination of things that you care about and you're interested in. All right. Well, those are my thoughts on Twitter. There is no canonical book. This is not evidence-based advice because in our lives, we do not have the same standards of evidence as we do in healthcare. Um, not all claims require randomized control trials. Of course, that's obvious because I recently used the restroom this morning. There's never been a randomized trial of any human being ever using the restroom at any different schedule, and yet we all manage to use the restroom because there's some things in life you don't require studies for. It's those studies where causality is murky, where hope gets in the way of the truth, and where interventions are costly and invasive and harmful and at best have modest to marginal effect sizes. That's where randomization really gets you far. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it's not uh, you know, a universal asset for every decision you make in life. So these are not evidence-based recommendations. These are um, recommendations that come from my observation. Oh, and the last thing I'd say is the gaming metrics. Um, 
I go to these conferences and I see that some proprietary company says the top 10 tweeters by mentions, the top 10 people by tweets, the top 10 people, um, I don't know, I don't even know what the words are, influencer, some, something like that. One, the moment they started introducing those rankings, I've noticed there's some people on Twitter who every time they tweet, they put their own handle in their own tweet. Thus, they are literally driving up their own mentions. They're literally gaming their own mentions. Um, boy, isn't that pathetic. Um, and, and, and no surprise that doctors who have, um, you know, worked their way around administrative billing codes know how to uh, uh, introduce um, language uh, into text that can allow for increased metric production. I mean, there's no doubt about that, that, that this is a skill that uh, doctors inadvertently learn in their, in their training. But if you're doing that, that, that's very sad. The second thing I'd say is many of these lists are downright inaccurate. And the reason I know that is, you know, I, I asked Derek Tao and colleagues a few years ago to build this, um, you know, Twitter database. And they started with me and they went through everyone who I followed and everyone who followed me, which is something like a few thousand people. They looked through all those accounts by hand and they plucked out everyone who's a hemonc doctor by, I think, largely through Googling who they were to find out who's a hemonc doctor. So we make a stack of hemonc doctors. And then out of every one of those hundred or so hemonc doctors, they went through all the people they followed, which is something like 50,000 accounts. And they went through all of those accounts by hand and they plucked out all the medical oncologists they could find there, all the hemonc doctors. And so now they have a set of like 600 hemonc doctors that they built painstakingly by hand. And then they took this set of hemonc doctors and we went through every one of them and we, we scraped how many followers they have, how many people they follow, their tweets, what the tweets are, their conflict of interest. We linked it to the database. We found that doctors on Twitter are heavily conflicted. In a subsequent paper in the Lancet Hematology, we found that they often tweet about topics for which they're conflicted. When they tweet about a drug for which they're conflicted, lo and behold, surprise, surprise, it's more positive than when they tweet about a drug for which there is no conflict. So we found all that. But one of the things we did from this is I could easily generate a list of who are the most followed oncologists, who have the most followers, who are doing the most tweets. You know, I have all this information in my hand. And then when I started to see lists that emerged of who are the most popular oncologists, the list was inaccurate. It had omissions. It had inclusions. Um, and one might wonder as to why a for-profit company might be putting out something inaccurate. But I will say there is a American tendency to want to follow lists. The, I want to only eat at the top 10 restaurant in Portland. I want to only go to a, a movie with a Rotten Tomatoes 80 or above. I only want to follow the top 10 oncologists. And of course, these kinds of foolish lists play into that. So those are just my thoughts on Twitter. I could care less about if you choose to follow my thoughts because I will silently unfollow you if you don't. All right. On that positive note, we'll be back later with more plenary session giving you the unique combination of topics I find interesting, which is evidence, medicine, policy, and data. So stay tuned for a future episode. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? 
Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>